0: you turn to Joshua chapter 6, Joshua 6, we'll pick up in verse 17. As we left last time, the children of Israel were given the victory. Remember, they were fighting from the victory, not for the victory. God had already promised what he was going to do. He had already given them instruction on in how to do it. They did it. In essence, we're at the crux of the walls coming down. They've traveled the Seventh Circuit Uh, They've blown the trumpets, and all that's left really is for the walls to come tumbling down. Probably most of you sang that song in children's ministry at some point in time, and the walls of Jericho came tumbling down. But there's something in this remaining part of this passage that is very, very, very important. And that really is something that we should learn after the victory And in this case, I think it would be best for us to apply it it to our own lives after God has delivered you. God has just delivered this city into the hand of the Israelites, the Jewish people. He delivered them, in essence, you could say by grace and through faith, amen? He gave them a gift of this city, if you want to look at it that way. They didn't earn it. There was no fighting involved. God gave them the victory. And so in that way, you can see this as a type of your salvation. God is now going to tell them how they are supposed to act after the victory. What they should do in the face of God's grace. How they should conduct themselves with regard to what God has done. Many Christians are mistakenly thinking that because grace is a free gift, that you can just simply do whatever you want to do. There are people who name the name of the Lord that engage in all kinds of behaviors that the Bible, quite frankly, says we as the children of God should not engage. Those things are called sin. It's behavior that's not becoming to a child of God. God is going to address that issue now. And so would you join me in prayer? We'll pick up in verse 17 and finish chapter 6. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, for your word, and for the power that it has to transform our lives. We pray, Lord, that you would use this time in your word for your own glory and for your purposes, that you'd speak to us. Anoint your word, give us ears to hear and to receive and to do with it as you would have us do. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 17, and now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction. Now I will tell you that this chapter, along with the instructions to the children of Israel that are found in the book of Deuteronomy, specifically in chapter 20, on how the Israelites were to treat those peoples that were in the land that they're going to conquer, are disturbing at best. Because we live in the age of grace. We live in that time when God has redeemed us by his grace, and he's caused us to love God and to love our neighbor, actually to do good to those who spitefully use us for his name's sake. And so we live in the age of grace. You have to remember that the children of God, the Israelites, did not live in the age of grace. They lived under the dispensation of the law. And they were to conduct themselves by the law. And that law gave very, very strict consequences to sinful behavior. Now praise God that by grace and through faith you've been saved And those consequences to sinful behavior were paid for at the cross of Christ. But that does not make what God did for you cheap, tawdry, nor does it give you the right to do whatever you want with your life. And that's in view here in this chapter. Now the city shall be doomed to destruction, it and all who are in it. Man, woman, child and animal, we're going to find out. Only Rahab, the harlot, shall live, she and all who are with her in her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, shall abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things. Church, sin defiles Accursed things still to this day defile God's kids. And we are not to afflict ourselves with accursed things. The children of Israel lived in a time when that could get you killed. You live in a time when that can cut you off from the grace of God. It, It can cause you to be outside of God's blessing. And in fact, it might cause you to be so deceived that you actually think you're saved and you're not. Abstain from those things. Why? Because you might become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. Sin not only has consequences, sin is infectious. Sin always has accursed things, always have done grave damage to those who name the name of the Lord. It stains the church and it stains the person. It can stain your family. It's destructive. It's never been anything less than destructive. And as believers, especially because we live under the grace of God, we should be especially attuned to the fact that God doesn't desire for his family to be sullied with the things of this world. He's called us to be holy, he's called us to be set apart. He's called us out of those things. He has not saved us so that we can do whatever it is that we want with everything that we possess, including our own bodies, our minds. But all the silver and gold, the vessels of bronze and iron, are all consecrated to the Lord, and they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. What do we do after the victory? I want you to notice something. God is asking of them 100%. He's not giving them the option, well, you can kind of sort of do some of these things. He's basically saying, here's what I want you to do, and you need to do it fully and completely. First and foremost, you need to wipe out every living thing that's in the city. And the question would come into our minds, any rational thinking person is, why would God do that? Everything that was dedicated to the Lord was to be separated unto the Lord. That principle still stands. Everything that is dedicated to the Lord, that would be you as a child of God, is to be separated unto the Lord. Your body belongs to God. Your mind belongs to God. Your strength belongs to God. Your possessions belong to God. And I think this is one of those oft-forgotten principles that, because we're saved by grace through faith, that we kind of downplay. We are to be separated out for the work of the Lord. We are not to be stained by the things of the world. Why is that important to us? Because those things have consequences. Notice the consequences. And so the people shouted when the priest blew the trumpet. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet that they shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat. You might remember the photos that were taken Uh, During Dr. Kenyon's excavations, during Dr. Wood's excavations, the walls literally are laying flat and they fell inward. Now notice what happens. And then the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man, woman, young, old, ox, sheep, and donkey with the edge of the sword. Seems kind of extreme, doesn't it? Seems like maybe an overreaction to sin. I mean, after all, you know, aren't we all sinners? Don't we all need God's grace? The answer to that is is absolutely yes, we do. We all need the grace of God. The problem is, in this particular case, that God knows when people are not going to repent. When people refuse to give up the sin that they're so radically engaged in. God is a God of mercy. God is actually desiring for those people to change. But when you first glance at this, when you read this passage, what you don't get along with it is how long God has actually tarried with this particular group of people and allowed them to do their own thing. By the time we get to the intertestamental period, by the time we look at these people groups that are now in view for us in this particular book, when we look back to the book of Exodus, you're going to find that there have been 440 years that God gave them the presence of the children of Israel and the law and God's holiness And all of those things that we would say would be the witness of God in the world, God gave them 440 years to repent. 440 years to repent. And they're not only not repentant, they're actually quite successful at sucking God's people into their sin. They're intermarrying. And God desired the children of Israel to be a holy people separated unto him. And so what does he do? He begins to systematically wipe out the problem. Now that may scare some of you sitting here in this room. And actually it should, to a little degree. Because God only allows us to sin for a season... And then just as his word says, the end of it is death. Might end in your own death. And and yes, I'm actually making death threats towards you. So it's illegal, I know, in the state of California. But sin kills, it always has. It's deadly. The cost can literally be your life, and here's why. God loves people and God hates sin. So he allows sin to exist. There's a choice that you can make to follow God volitionally, but make no mistake, he hates sin, but he loves people who are sinning. And so he expects the sinning people by his grace to change. He thinks of you more highly than you probably think of yourself, so he gives you opportunity that you were supposed to take. And when you refuse over time, as Pharaoh did to repent, then God has no choice but to make sure that you don't poison the rest of the people. That you're not the cause of other people's fall, other people's stumble. He loves people too much to allow your sin to affect people in such a way that they may be drawn away. So this is a warning to us about living lives that are filled with sin as people who are named amongst God's children. It's a strong passage. God basically says, they're not going to repent. I am going to destroy them. This is not actually unique. Deuteronomy 20, if you want to look at it later, verse 15, it says this, Thus you shall do to all of the cities which are far from you, which are not the cities of these nations, but the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So this is the word that Moses wrote as he authored the book of Deuteronomy, instructing the people on how they should live related to the revelation they had of God. And notice it's not, we'll just talk to them really nice. Continue to, you know, kind of just let them go and do their thing. But the cities of these people which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So this is the cities of the promised land that's in view. It's not the faraway cities. It's the cities that you yourselves are going to inhabit. Now, localize this for you. This is your family. This is your house. This is where you live. This is your church would be a really good way to look at this. God has called us out to be a holy people. He's placed us in a larger group of people called the church. God's church is supposed to be holy as God is. And so he puts us into the church. And so what God won't accept is not sinners that don't know him sinning, but people who do know him sinning. God hates sin because it destroys And once you have come to faith in Christ, or once you have known of the goodness of God, it is not a wise thing for you to persist in sin. Because God's called you out. He saved you for a purpose. He's redeemed you from all of those things. In the Old Testament, here's what happened. You shall let nothing that breathes remain alive. Now this was written while they were still in the wilderness. So they've spent that 40 years wandering. So there's 400 years that they were in captivity plus 40 years in the wilderness. 440 years. Nothing, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord God commanded you. Why would God say that? Why would God do that? It's hard to wrap our heads around. I I readily admit, it's like, man, I know who I am and I know what God saved me from. I know why I'm here today. I know why tonight I rest in the grace of God. And it's not because Pastor Jeff is perfect Pastor Jeff. It's because Pastor Jeff has been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Pastor Jeff is still a sinner that needs a savior. Pastor Jeff has had grace poured out upon grace in his life. But Pastor Jeff has also chosen to live his life godly in Christ Jesus. Pastor Jeff has received that grace gift and said, Yes, Lord, your servant hears. Yes, Lord, I want to do what your word says. Pastor Jeff is not doing what these guys did which is, well, it's really not that bad. You know, after all, the Jebusite ladies and the Jebusite men make pretty good spouses, so we'll just intermarry, and we'll kind of try and mix the two cultures. We'll try and blend in ungodliness into our wholly separated lives. And this is the conundrum that every believer today, by grace, As you're a child of God that's now saved because God's blood has washed away the stain of your sin, the conundrum you face is you live in a fallen world. That world is filled with sin. And you have a choice whether you are going to make nice with this world and try and bring it into your existence or whether you're going to stay separated and holy unto the Lord. That's your choice. God honors that choice to remain separate. Be ye separate says the Lord. You're a holy that's in essence the root word hagios. Holiness, saints means separated. Separated to what? Separated to whom? Separated to God. And so the children of Israel refused to remain separated to the Lord and God knew this about their character and so in order to save them from themselves he says i'm going to take some of the temptation away from you by wiping out these people that you're prone to fall in love with prone to follow and here's where this touches us in our day and time sometimes we get so in love with foreign gods like money power fame that god has to remove the money the power And the fame. Sometimes it's education. God removes the power of that education. Sometimes it's our self reliance, and God removes the self reliance. He slays, in essence, the foreign God that has come into your house that you want to marry yourself to, that Jesus actually referred to when he said, No one can serve God and mammon. And it goes all the way back to the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God wants you for himself. And so in this case, they were refusing to be separate, refusing to be holy. The cities that were far off didn't matter. They were no threat to God's character in the promised land. But the cities in the promised land, They were a threat to the character and nature of God because they were sucking the people in. It's a picture of God hating sin. Notice verse 18. Look at it very closely. Lest they teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods and you sin against the Lord your God. That's how much God hates sin. Now, remember that while we're children of grace and we're no longer under the law, in other words, we're not going to be judged by the law, but by grace, the moral standard that God has set forth in the Old Testament still stands. The way we relate to it now is by the blood of Jesus. But the standard still stands. If God hated sin in the Old Testament, he can't like it in the New Testament. Does that make sense? In other words he hated the abominations of the foreign nations that were in the promised land he hated the sin that was in the people he doesn't now like sin he's not okay when we say well you know just you know if you want to divorce just divorce it's okay we live in the modern age we figured some things out if you want to be a homosexual that's just fine with god now If you want to watch pornography, don't don't worry about it. God doesn't care about that stuff. He just cares that you received Him. That is what I call holy hogwash. That's holy hogwash. God is still holy, and His moral attributes that are clearly visible in the Old Testament are completely unchanged in the New. Completely. He is just as holy. He is just as upset about sin, so much so that the book of Romans actually explains this to us in chapter 1, that the wrath of God remains on the unrighteous. Just because you have grace available, even though you've received grace, God is still not saying, well, you know, just kind of marry foreign gods if you want. Live however you want. Do whatever you want with your body. That's why I've been telling you, it is not your body. You do not have a right to do with it as you want. Not as a believer. The world can say that all day, and it's true as far as the world's concerned. Without Christ, you can do anything you want all day, every day, and you know what's going to happen when you die? You're going to perish eternally. But as a child of God, you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, and your life is no longer your own. In fact, everything about your life, everything you possess, and your own body itself, actually belongs to the Lord. And you're supposed to use it for His glory. You're not supposed to defile the holy temple in which the Spirit of God dwells, that would be you. It's you. It's not a building made with hands, it's you. God wanted a holy seed, a righteous people. In that sense, God was at war with sin. Exactly as G. Campbell Morgan said. And I want you to think of it this way. Be careful about what you think God thinks. Why do I say that? Because a lot of people think that God has to agree with me. The fact of the matter is God does not have to agree with you. When God has previously spoken about what he thinks about anything and everything, that is still what he thinks. That's still what he thinks. So God didn't move into the 21st century and go, oh man, I messed up with the people in the lands of Canaan. I really should, I should have never had the children of Israel wipe those poor people out because they were totally innocent. They just didn't know what we know now in the 21st century. If they had had the ability to actually kind of sit down and talk it through, they would have proven that I was wrong on these issues of idolatry and worshiping false gods and offering their children on the brazen Arms of Molech. You know, I really should have rethought that before I had him wipe out all the people. Sorry, but no. God was right then, and he's right today. And he has the exact same holy standard today that he had then. He's not a different God, there's one God. People desire to call their own shots. People would like to say, well, God now thinks this way. God still is against drunkenness. God is still against carousing. God is still against a party lifestyle. God still hates sin. So just because the advertisements on the Super Bowl make a party lifestyle look like something you should desire and everybody's doing it, God doesn't like it. We're supposed to be as he wants us to be, not how we want to be. So be careful about you thinking what God should think. Because in a lot of these issues, God's already told you what he thinks. And it isn't what the world thinks. Hence, the people in the land were annihilated. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, But behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that he cannot save, nor is his ear heavy, that he cannot hear. But your iniquities, iniquities are, are, you can look at the word iniquity and kind of substitute the word bruise, if you would, An iniquity is something that's actually happened that has produced a permanent mark on the person that is engaged in it. It's a bruising. It's where sin is so deep that it causes a character issue to be visible. But your iniquities have separated you from God. And your sins have hidden His face so that he will not hear. In the life of a child of God, someone who names the name of the Lord, when that person sins, God says, if that's what you want, I'm not going to stop you, but I'm also not going to listen to you. What he's waiting for is repentance. What he's waiting for is a turning away. What he's waiting for is for us to say, God, you were right. I am wrong. I'm going to do what you said. But when you don't do that, then God's saying, I'm not going to hear your prayers. Now, because God's omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, he can hear them, but he's under no obligation to act on them because your sin has separated you. And so the children of Israel were in that place. And because that sin separates and destroys, God's saying, look, I'm going to turn off the fount of blessing. I'm going to make your life very difficult I'm going to allow these things to run their course until you repent. Until you say, yes, Lord, your servant hears. And when you say, yes, Lord, your servant hears, then God says, okay, now we can get somewhere. Now my ears are attentive. Paul writing to the church at Rome, there in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? This is perhaps the the classic opening line of any New Testament chapter. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? The question was, well, if God's grace is so abounding, it's so great, it's so wonderful, then if I keep sinning, isn't God just shown to be more glorious? That's the basic question that's being answered here in Romans 6. If God's a God of grace and I sin some more, then God forgives me some more, and so the world looks at it and goes, look how much sinning Jeff did and God forgave him. Notice the answer to that very specific question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The Apostle Paul says... Certainly not. With absolute certainty, the answer is absolutely no. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? That was the issue for the Israelites. I told you through Moses that this would have to be done that there was not a chance in the world that I would allow you to try and live in that environment because my people can't live in sin. And if you move into Jericho, you're going to be living in sin. If you moved into Jerusalem, which at the time was inhabited by the Jebusites, you'll live in sin. If you move into Gath, the Philistines will cause you to live in sin. If you move into Samaria, the Samaritans will cause you to live in sin. And so I'm going to deliver you from sin. I don't want you to live in sin any longer. So this is a picture of how we as believers need to deal decisively with sin in our lives. It must be put to death. You can't make nice with sin. It is impossible for you as a believer to dwell in a sinful state. Because you're at conflict. You have a holy God. You have a holy faith. You're supposed to live a holy life. And you're in the presence of unholiness. That's why when you walk into a bar filled with drunken people, the first thing you think is, I don't belong here. That's why when you're involved in that relationship, and it's gone way too far, you're Everything about you as a believer is going, this is not what I should be doing right now. That's why when you have that financial opportunity that actually isn't an opportunity, you're actually stealing from someone because you're telling them something that's not true and you're offering them remuneration that will never come. That's why your mind tells you, I can't do this job as a child of God. Certainly not, is the answer. How then can I continue in sin any longer? The answer is you can't. You won't. You absolutely should not. Why? Because sin kills. One hundred and six Psalm, verse 33, because they rebelled against his spirit, so that he spoke rashly with his lips... They did not destroy the people. This is the same group of people. We're going to find out that the Israelites kind of almost did what God asked them to do. Concerning those whom the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the Gentiles. In other words, they kind of almost sort of did what God asked them to do. They thought about it and they go, well, God can't really be asking us to do that. I mean... After all, they got nice farms and they got nice vineyards, and they're, you know, those are nice people. And, they're, and God actually had told them, no, it, you will never be able to live this way. What happened? They learned their works, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons. And their daughters to demons, they shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. You see, God was trying to prevent that. He was saying, "Mm -mm, don't go there. When the Holy Spirit speaks to you about issues of sin, that's God going, "Mm -mm, don't go there. That's the Lord speaking into your life. It's like, Jeffrey Scott Gill? Remember, he uses my full name when he's trying to get my attention. Do not go there. Don't say that. Don't do that. Don't buy that. Don't be that. Why? Because sin kills. It even kills believers. Now, it may not be a death sentence eternally, But it will destroy your relationship with people and it will definitely destroy your relationship with God to the point that you may not even know if you're saved or not. If you read the rest of this, thus they were defiled by their own works. They played the harlot by their own deeds. And therefore the wrath of the Lord was kindled against his own people. Now again, You're a child of God by grace through faith. God's not looking at every single thing that you do and going, okay, now's the time I get to barbecue, Jeff. Yep, that's it. He's done. Don't, Don't get that opinion. Don't take the legalistic view of it. It's a warning. Why do we have warnings? Because somebody cares enough to remind us if you go around that curve at 55 miles an hour when it says 15, you're probably going into a canyon you're likely going to crash your car. You're probably going to go across the line. You may kill yourself or worse yet, some innocent person on the other side of the road. For a fairly long period of time, I was an EMT with San Bernardino County Fire up in the mountains. And inevitably, there was always the driver of the lifted four-wheel drive with massive tires that they thought would grip in the snow, that thought somehow that they were immune to gravitational force during the winter. And that was usually a male someplace between 18 and 27. Driving 55, 60 miles an hour, and it says 35 when it's dry. No, it doesn't say when it's dry. It just says 35, period. So add ice into the mix, I can't tell you how many people were put in on backboards, extricated from cars, cut out of their vehicle because somebody wouldn't follow the warning signs. Warning signs are there for a reason. When God warns us, it's because he loves us. Remember the book of Hebrews says that God chastens those whom he loves. And if he doesn't chasten you, you're not even one of his kids. So when God says ahead of time, that's heading towards a chastening. That's a good time for us to go, "Hmm, not going that way. That's why those Hebrews passages should startle us, scare us a little bit. Once you're enlightened, if you fall away, and that doesn't mean if you sin, that means if you reject the grace of God, It's a one-way deal. God doesn't look at it and go, well, just get saved again. Be careful. Sin still kills. Little known fact to a lot of people. You realize if the Israelites had actually done what God asked them in the book of Joshua, that the book of Judges would have never been written? if they had actually done what God had asked them in the book of Joshua, the book of Judges would have never been written. There would have been no need. They would have been a called out, a holy, a separated people. And the judges who needed to judge righteously would have never been needed. They would have actually been what God asked them to be. Good news, God always saves the Righteous. God always saves the righteous. Notice what God didn't do. Because remember, a promise was made to Rahab. And God made good on his promise. God always makes good on his promise. And God always spares the righteous. That's why I can counsel with couples and one or the other has made some grievous sin mistake in their life And maybe they're unrepentant. I can always look at the offended one who has held the line of righteousness and I say, No matter what your husband does, no matter what your wife does, God will take care of you. God will. He's not going to abandon you. You've been faithful, God will take care of you. No matter what happens, because God honors His promises. He saves his own. He knows his own precious people. In this case, God had patiently endured the evil of the Canaanites, really from the time of Abraham. The whole time that the the Old Testament as we know it is underway, there's pagans in the land that God's promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But we know for certain, because we have the history of those 440 years, that God was allowing that to occur. He didn't automatically just, okay, well, everybody's going to do what I tell them to do. That's why when people tell me that God's grace is irresistible, I tell them they're they're crazy. The entire Bible tells us that God's grace can be and is resisted by an awful lot of people. You have to choose this day whom you're going to serve. You have to believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those those statements are meaningless to somebody who thinks that everyone either gets saved or isn't saved because they can't be saved. It's pointless. But God is faithful to his promises. And he does call his kids and he does elect them and he does choose them. But he gives you a part in that. You have to believe on the name of the, the Lord himself. You have to be personally In fellowship and communion with him, you must be a doer of the word, not just a hearer only. From the Exodus to the crossing of the Jordan, there was 40 years. And during that 40 years, remember the spies, the ten spies that go with Joshua and Caleb, there's 12, but 10 go, nope, we're not going in. Remember why? There's giants in the land. We will be as grasshoppers to them. They were faithless. They they looked at the problem. They said, that problem is too big for God. God promised us that land. But if we don't do something about the people that are already there, then we're in trouble. I believe it was at that moment there were parts of the children of Israel that were already going, well, we could just intermarry with them. We could kind of start doing what they do they were probably conjuring up in their mind how to compromise. A horrific word when it comes to sin. You can't compromise with the devil, you can't compromise with sin. If you compromise with the devil, if you compromise with sin, if you compromise with the world, your own personal walk with the Lord, that compromise can be fatal. is isn't always, but it can be. And so God, because he's unwilling that any should perish, exactly as Peter writes to us. God doesn't desire even the wicked to perish. God actually desires for the wicked to turn. But because not everyone does, God says, I'm going to allow sin to have its season. But make no mistake, it's the wrong team. It's the wrong side to be on. Again, the good news, there's always a way out. Rahab found a way out, amen? She did the right thing. And and wonderfully, wonderfully, just as Romans 15 writes to us, these historical things were written for our learning. Paul got that in the New Testament era. He said, these things that were written about the children of Israel were written so that we would understand them. So the book of Hebrews, when it records in chapter 11, this remarkable role or hall of faith, Rahab's in there, isn't she? Rahab the harlot is in the lineage of Jesus. That is nuts to me. It's crazy. If I was going to write a book, I'm not putting Rahab in Jesus' lineage, okay? Just not. It's like, that's my cousin's aunt's uncle's sister, Rahab the harlot. (laughs) Can you imagine Jesus? Family function. Recounting his lineage. And Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. And he could. Why? Because she was redeemed. She was righteous. There was a way out and she took it. She refused to be defined by her sin any longer. She was now Rahab, who used to be a harlot. She was Rahab that used to be defined that way. She was Rahab whose BC days were pretty gnarly, but her after-conversion experience caused her to be one of the people who's in the lineage of Christ himself. There's always a way out. The question is, will you take it? As Moses writes the law, one of the components of the law, after he gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, you shall not bow down nor serve those foreign gods, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God. God is jealous for our affection. He's like every good husband, every good wife, there should be a holy jealousy. If I think somebody is nefarious with regard to how they view my wife, you and I got problems. At that point, I'm a jealous husband. Not because I'm jealous of her. I'm jealous for her. I think you have something going on that ain't what God wants. And so you and I have issues. And in the same way, God is jealous for his people. He wants you to himself. That's what holy means. You're set apart. You belong to him. Matter of fact, New Testament describes us as the bride of Christ. Does he not? That's who we are. In that sense, you are the bride of Christ, and he's jealous. It's like, don't you even think. Don't come near me. Don't bring that into my house. You see, that light was always already shining in the Old Testament times. That's why Jesus could quote Isaiah and said, A light that shines unto the Gentiles. That's what he was getting at. The light had been on for a long time. That remnant of the children of Israel that was righteous, the whole world could see that. The Lord's not going to share my life. He's not going to have any rival loves. So when those things come up, God does what every good jealous husband will do. He's going to act decisively. You better not come around, or it's going to be bad for you. It's going to protect. It's also not going to permit compromise with the enemy. Sometimes people will ask me, you know, that, that passage in Second Corinthians chapter six. Yeah, I don't, I don't quite get it. Well, it's actually pretty easy. If you understand the context, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. You see, back in those days and times, people couldn't go to like a cattle lot and pick out two perfectly matched oxen. You got what was already there. So what you had to do was fashion the yoke to fit the two oxen that you actually had. And so there, was no, there wasn't the yoke shop at Sears, okay? You didn't go in there, it's like, well, I'd like a 12, please. No, you actually made the yoke fit the oxen. And so as believers, because we are yoked together with God, there can't be any unequal yoking. You, you, you can't take this thing that is the unbeliever and the believer and put them together because there's no yoke suited for that purpose. They don't fit together. They won't plow the same direction. They won't do the, the job that we've been called to do. Paul addresses that when he says, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? So what had God told the children of Israel while they're here in the land? I don't want even a remnant left of that evil because you'll be unequally yoked to unbelievers. You'll you'll bring that into your house. You'll bring that into your relationships. You will be tempted and tested and you're not going to survive that, so don't do it. Don't be unequally yoked. As Paul continues that passage in, in 2 Corinthians 6, Verse 15 says, what accord has Christ with the devil, with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Get the picture? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? That's an Old Testament example in the New Testament. That's what happened in Canaan. There was no agreement with the idols and the temple. You can't put them together. It's not There's no yoke that will yoke those two things together. It's an impossibility. And so if you do it, you do it to your own peril. You're going to be pulled towards the idols. I dwell among them. I walk among them. I will be their God. They will be my people. And therefore, verse 17, 2 Corinthians 6, therefore, come out from among them, Be separate, says the Lord. Do not even touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. There's always a way out. But that way out will not be hand in hand with the enemy. You're you're not going to be able to make nice. If you know anyone who's made the mistake of marrying an unbeliever, they can tell you the horror story. Of being unequally yoked. What that's done in their life. How there are two directions they're trying to go one towards the Lord, one towards the world. There was a rescue coming. But Joshua, verse 22, had said to the two men who spied out the country Go into the harlot's house, and from there bring out the women and all that she has as you swore to her and the young men who, were, who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had, so that they brought out all of her relatives and left them outside of the camp of Israel. Notice how the, even the defiled ones who were declared righteous because they had done what God had asked, even they were not fully in yet. They were left outside. And that's a picture, it's like, Here in the camp of Israel, God is holy. We're not quite sure you're there yet. We know you're on your journey, but there's still some some skepticism. And so they're left outside. But they burned the city and all that was in it with fire. Hence the evidence that you see at the excavations of Jericho of the entire city being burned. There's a devastation layer that exists throughout the entire tell that is tell Jericho. That that city was burned. They burned it. Only the gold and the silver vessels and bronze and iron. Interesting, there's not a stitch of treasure. They haven't found a single piece in all of Jericho. They found grain. They found pots that once held food substances. But not a bit of treasure. Not one coin. Not in the destruction layer. And they put it into the treasury to the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had, so that she dwells in Israel to this day, because she hid the messengers from Joshua who sent the spies out of Jericho. And then Joshua charged them at the time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord, not to me, before the Lord, who rises up and builds this city of Jericho. Interesting, when you look at the tell, the mound that is Jericho, it was never rebuilt. So to this day, you're talking the better part of 3,500 years. There has never been a rebuilt city on that nine and a half acres that is the, the tell Jericho. Curse be the man who rises up and builds the city Jericho. Bear in mind that building materials were at a very high premium. It's one of the reasons that you see Civilization layer upon civilization layer, if you travel to Tel Megiddo when we go to the valley of Megiddo and Tel Megiddo, there are 28 civilization layers in Tel Megiddo. And you just simply take the stones from one and build the next. You fill in the rubble of the old city walls and build on top of it. That's why they turn into these little mini mountains. Del Jericho has one level. It's that level. God cursed it. He shall lay its foundation with its firstborn, and its youngest he shall set up in its gates. In other words, they would be tried at the gates of the city if they even gave it a thought, down to their youngest children. God was going to rescue them by abundant, amazing grace. They would be taken in, and ultimately Rahab would marry Solomon and Salmon we would become the ancestress of the great King David and in the lineage of the Messiah. That's God's grace. God using the the unlovely to do the lovely things. Using the foolishness of this world to confound the wise. But really, it's up to us to receive that. Grace is pictured here. But just like they had to receive the grace, Rahab had to act on it. It would have made a whole bunch of sense for Rahab to go, nah, I'm going to stick with my peeps. You know, we have a city. We've got a water supply. You're a ragtag band of farmers and sheep herders. I'm sticking with my people. We have swords. You got rocks. You're bringing trumpets. I'm sticking with my home folk, homeboys. I'm going to stay here in Jericho. In other words, she had to make a choice to receive the grace that God was offering or to hang with what she already had, which was sin and death. Isn't that what the New Testament says? The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of life is found in God's grace in Christ eternal, right? She's an Old Testament picture of one person being saved. One at a time. And then her family. Her witness to her family saved them. They made that decision too. For us, that's a sign to not reject that evidence. Just like Jericho. Our present world is under a destruction order from God. Did you know that? It's under a destruction order from God. Romans chapter 1. Verse 20. Actually, let's go to verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and godhood, so that they are without excuse. There's the evidence. God has always been fair to reveal himself to absolutely every people group, everyone. I don't believe there'll be a single person, if we ever get an opportunity to understand who has perished and who has not, there won't be a single person who perished without Christ that didn't know what they were giving up. Because that's what God's word declares. They'll be without excuse. They won't go, wow, I just didn't hear. No, you just didn't believe. You didn't receive. And people say, well, you know, we haven't translated the Bible, or people haven't gone to that person, or that that leaves out the work of the Holy Spirit. When people make that case, you're presuming that God can't speak to people individually by himself. That is heretical, according to the teaching of Scripture. Because we see throughout Scripture, God speaking to individuals one at a time. So don't ever make that excuse. Well, we don't need to do that. Yeah, you do need to do that because you've been called to preach the gospel to the entire world and to make disciples. But God is still faithful so that everyone will be without excuse. Those two things go hand in hand. The question is, what have you done with the evidence? Ultimately, people can believe and be saved. The tragedy is when people are lost because they willingly reject the evidence. They won't receive the light. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be anyone you know. And for us who remain, let God call the shots. Notice verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all of the country. The picture is this. God had been absolutely truthful and accurate with Joshua. He had said, this is what's going to happen. This is what we're going to do. This is what you're going to see. And absolutely every single point happened. There was not a single thing that God said that he didn't do. He bore witness of himself. He said, this is what's going to happen. This is what I want you to do. But it was on them to receive it. It was on them to believe it. It was on them to do it. And some of them chose not to, and we're going to find out who that is in chapter 7. We're going to see what comes of it from Achan's sin. Moses, in essence, had been warning the Jewish people against idolatry and the danger of following those false religious practices of the people in the land of Canaan for a long time. And now they got to see the effect of it. The truth is Jesus was absolutely accurate when he said no man no man can serve two masters. That the result of serving the wrong one is not a good thing. You know people sometimes debate with me. Well, I don't think hell is real. Well, then you don't agree with Jesus. Because Jesus called it a furnace of fire. Jesus said that. That's not Jeff, that's Jesus. John compared it to a lake of fire, an unquenchable fire. John the Baptist is what he said. Hell's a real place, but it wasn't created for mankind. It was created for Satan and his angels. And you're going to have to fight over the evidence. You're going to have to claw over the good things that God does to get there. You're going to have to be deliberate about wanting to perish. It's not just going to happen to you accidentally. God is speaking the gospel. God is making his will known. God made Joshua an example of what it's like to follow him. But it wouldn't take very long and as we read through this book and into the book of Judges and then into 1st and 2nd Chronicles that even the great kings like Uzziah began to rest and trust in their own power and their own abilities. And it didn't go good. And so the moral of the story is with, is with this particular chapter. God is a consuming fire. Moses was right. And what happened to Jericho is a picture of what happens to people who deliberately sin. And so you have this contrast. Do you want to be saved or do you want to be burned? That's the two options. They're saints and ain'ts. They're saved and unsaved. There's people going to heaven. There's people going to hell. There's only two roads. Narrow is the way. There's only two roads. And narrow is the way that leads to righteousness. Only Rahab was saved. And her family. What about you? What about people you know? What have you done to show them the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? That's the question. Joshua, we're going to find out, spent the rest of his life serving the Lord. Making sure that people knew who his God was. His life testified of that all the way to the end. He didn't do the same thing all the time, but he had the same testimony all the time. And I pray that we do that too. So what to do after the victory? Yeah. time to stop sinning and get right. And then give him the glory for absolutely everything that happens. Amen. Amen, let's stand and we'll close in prayer.' We'll have some pastors down front available for prayer. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for the grace, the incredible grace that you've poured out in my life, in Connie and I's life, in the life of this church and so many. Uh, in this body, and we just declare, Lord, you alone are worthy of that glory. And Lord, we ask that you would just make these areas of our lives that need a touch, need a change, visible, and give us the power and the strength to take that decisive action against those things which are contrary to your will. Lord, thank you for these passages that are reminders, that are warnings, Lord, really, uh, of not following you. Of walking in a way that's not indicative of who we are as children of God. Help us to be that called out people that honors you with every breath. Lord, we love you. We bless you. We thank you. And we just give you, Lord, our lives that you would use them victoriously to tell the world about your grace. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. And we hope you were encouraged by today's message.